from the feature staff at the Columbus Dispatch. This is Life in the 614. Hi, and welcome to Life in the 614, the official lifestyle podcast of the Features Department at the Columbus Dispatch, coming to you every week. If it sounds like fun, we'll be talking about it. I'm Ryan Smith, Features Editor at the Dispatch, and today we'll be talking with Catherine Sullivan, who in 1984 became the first American woman to walk in space. In her upcoming book, Handprints on Hubble, An Astronaut's Story of Invention, the far north side resident recounts her 1990 mission to deploy the space telescope that has revolutionized our understanding of the universe. Her book will be released November 19th, but before that, Sullivan will speak at 3 p.m. Sunday at COSI Columbus, where she once served as president and CEO. She took some time before her upcoming event to speak with my colleague, Lifestyles reporter Eric Legata, about the mission, the book, and what it's like to be in space. Take it away, Eric. So obviously, in Handprints on Hubble, it's all about you chronicling your experiences with the Hubble telescope during your time in space and kind of the impact it had on you and NASA. So could you start by telling me, I guess, you know, what is the significance of Hubble and, and what has it accomplished for civilization? Because obviously it's it's had a huge, an enormous impact. Yeah, Hubble really has been an extraordinary scientific instrument. I mean, I would say a couple of things would be my headlines. I think, and I'm not an astronomer, so that first caveat, but the abundance, the breadth and abundance of new insights, new understandings of of our of galaxies, of our universe, it's, I think it's fair to say it has quite revolutionized uh, our understandings, including scientists' understanding of our universe and how it evolved. And another thing that I think distinguishes it probably from any prior astronomical instrument is that its images, its results have entered the popular conversation and the popular culture in a way that I can't remember any other instrument doing. Some of that is certainly thanks to its coming along right around the time that you know, computers became general public um, utilities we hold in our hand, and the Internet let information, data and information move globally with a, like water. It just flows everywhere. So those that confluence of things, I mean, I, I see Hubble images on the side of kids' lunchboxes, on I see images of Hubble itself on the side of U-Haul trucks and trailers, you know, clothing, you go through an airport, you're just about bound to see somebody wearing a, a t-shirt or a pair of socks or something that's got some bit of Hubble images on it, cell phone cases. So, I mean, that's just really amazing to me, the degree to which this rich and artistic understanding of our universe has permeated pop culture. Certainly a first in my lifetime. Yeah, and I'm sure as you were, when you were up there, I'm sure you weren't considering all of this or thinking about its lasting impact, but now, now that you kind of look back on it, all these years later, I guess, you know, what what is it like to be part of that legacy? Well, you know, we did, our crew of five, we did kind of foresee this in a, you know, dim kind of way, but we joked uh, before, as we were training and in quarantine before lifting off, one of our inside jokes was, you know, when we get back, assuming the mission goes well, when we get back and Hubble's in orbit, we, when we throw our post-landing party, which every crew would always do to thank the large team that helped them make the mission succeed, so, you know, we should, we should gather up all the astronomy textbooks that we have between us from our undergraduate and grad school education, and we should make a bonfire and burn them, because the likelihood is... You know, Hubble is going to be such a powerful instrument in its size of its mirror, the capability of its first instruments being above the atmosphere. It's just so likely to you know, undo. It's going to render every textbook we studied with college. Uh, it's going to render them all obsolete pretty darn quickly. We should have a bonfire and burn them all. You know, needless to say, our NASA bosses were not <laughs> thrilled with us having any kind of joke that had to do with book burning. But I, I think that just sort of suggests to you how entranced we were even before we put it in orbit with the potential 
that Hubble offered. And then, of course, the really huge crushing disappointment initially that to find out that the mirror had been cut to the wrong shape and then the rejoicing when that was a correctable problem and partly correctable for the reasons I talk about in my book because of the foresight of a bunch of engineers to make sure that Hubble could be not only repaired, but it could be improved over time through on-orbit maintenance. So, And that comes back to your first question again, Eric, because the other really unique thing about Hubble, it's the first ever scientific instrument put into space that was designed and built and equipped from the outset to be able to evolve and improve over its lifetime. The telescope that's up there today is, I would guess, about a thousand times better instrument than the one we put into orbit in 1990 because old equipment, old electronics have been able to be taken out and newer ones with better detectors, with solid state memory, with higher data rates have been able to be put in. So it's a vastly better instrument today coming up on 30 years later than it was when it started, and that's thanks thanks to this maintenance capability. And I know that that was that's kind of a theme in your book. Is it's kind of this this confluence of you know invention, you know innovation on one hand, and maintenance on the other. And it's you know kind of both those things went into what you and your team did. And, and I know you were part of the team that launched, rescued, repaired, and maintained that that telescope. So I mean, kind of with that in mind, this invention and maintenance aspect in mind, kind of briefly recount some of the work that um, that you did on the telescope. Yeah, you know, we I think in our day-to-day lives, we tend to think of innovation as the cool thing that you do when you're clever and smart, and maintenance as the drudgery thing you do when something is broken down. But, you know, what I learned through my work pre-launch on the Hubble is the two are actually closely intertwined. The Hubble was designed from the beginning with an architecture that would allow it to be maintained, but the group that I worked with from 1985 to 1990, our job was you got to make sure that that notion of it should be possible to maintain it, you got to make sure it's actually real, that we actually have the tools and the equipment, the wrenches and the screwdrivers and the everything else, and we know they work on the Hubble. You, we can't have an astronaut crew getting up to the telescope in a couple of years and having to radio home and say, hey guys, this thing doesn't work or this tool doesn't fit. So to do that work, you know, you don't go to Home Depot and buy telescope repair tools. You have to actually create these tools and you have to create gadgets that can work in the tight spaces of something that's as complex as Hubble. You have to create gadgets and tools that people can use when they're dressed in a spacesuit, which is kind of the equivalent of wearing two snowmobile suits plus a bucket on your head. And there was some jobs that were pre-planned. Let's make sure we can do these kind of repair and replace activities, but then a second batch emerged pretty late in the game of items that could go wrong that we ought to be able to fix that no one actually planned to be able to fix them before. So can you guys like improvise and adapt the tools and the gear so that we could fix it if we had to? Classic case in that last batch uh, was done on, I think it was the fourth servicing flight. It's really quite huge electronics box that every single electronic signal in Hubble goes through this one big box. It's like the central nervous system for the telescope. It was never intended to be replaceable on orbit, but we realized we had to make it replaceable on orbit. Unfortunately, we realized that after the telescope was built and assembled and tested, so we really had to jury rig and improvise a way to make it interchangeable. Uh, We figured that out. It was some specialized tools and a a couple of modifications to the telescope itself, and thank heavens we did because the ability to replace that on the fourth servicing mission is the reason Hubble is still alive today, coming up on 30 years. Yeah, so 30 years later, so I guess, what's bridge you to write the this book now then? What really motivated me to write this book is 
that this chapter of Hubble's history had not been told in detail, the chapter of thinking ahead about making it maintainable and, and then actually delivering on that. And I, I was always intrigued that when that idea first began circulating around, it was so long ago, there almost wasn't a space age yet. So what creativity and what audacity of engineers in the early 1960s, mid-1960s, to be imagining a, a huge telescope put into orbit that human beings, you know, astronauts would maintain. There had been like maybe three people ever fly in space at that point in time, and, and two spacewalks done, one of which was almost fatal. So the boldness of that imagination to conceive of things so far beyond what any human being had ever done, and then the engineering expertise and the drawing drawing on prior experiences, which largely were auto mechanics experiences. Uh, this team, these, these men, made the Hubble design, uh, gave it the architecture it has that makes it possible to maintain it. And then this other group of engineers came along in the 80s that I worked closely with from 85 to 90, they're kind of, they're sort of the hidden figures of the Hubble story to me. Their engineering work, their inventiveness in creating these tools, again, really is the reason Hubble is alive today and is so much more powerful today than it was in 1990. And they've never really gotten the credit the credit that they deserve. The attention, understandably, goes to the astronauts on the five servicing missions and the huge challenges of the spacewalks that they had to carry off. But those astronauts had a very firm foundation of proven, reliable, cleverly created tools at their disposal to start with. They never had to doubt their tools or equipment, and that's thanks to these engineers who never really got their due. The, the sort of, we called them the M&R team, the maintenance and repair team. And I can tell you that it was a real badge of honor from 1985 uh, all the way through the entire Hubble program to be on the M&R team. Those were the cool kids. The maintenance and repair team were the cool kids, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in, in learning about kind of how, how this book came together. And I know, you know, considering this is the history you lived through, I'm, I'm sure, you know, that it didn't take, uh, you know, as much research. But, I mean, how did you bring this whole book together? And what were the, some, some of the challenges you faced in doing that? It, well, the first challenge was finding out whether any, any organization would really be interested in this sort of twin tale of my memoir, kind of my memoir intertwined with a Hubble memoir, in a sense. And happily, the Smithsonian uh, in the Lemelson Center for Innovation has a program that I've read some of their books before. They It's a series of books that help us appreciate how technology evolved by showing us the lives of people. So you, know, you learn about the evolution of computer sciences by following the life of Grace Hopper, a fascinating figure. So this idea of using a piece of my life story to reveal an, an important and interesting chapter in the evolution of technology, that was kind of right up their alley. The research I needed to do was interesting, as it turns out, because I knew what I experienced, and I could go back through my notes and, and sort of refresh my memory on that. But I realized, you know, I was like a little kid watching a baseball game through a tiny little knot hole in a fence. I only saw and knew the little bit of this whole story that I could see from my my little hole in the fence. And there were many dimensions of the story that I was involved in that I didn't appreciate when I was hurrying so intently through my role as a crew member. So the two things I needed to do and wanted to do were go into the historical archives, the, the documents and records and papers that document how the Hubble program evolved and learn more about you know the timing, the timing and the stages in which this idea of maintaining something in orbit 
the timing through which that really evolved. I discovered the maintenance idea came, it dated far back, much further back in time than I had realized. It was a notion in the mid-60s, but then as the telescope budget and politics and early engineering challenges got so intense, the maintenance idea kind of faded to background and frankly kind of got neglected for a number of years. When I was assigned to start working on Hubble in 1985, it's kind of the moment that this maintenance idea was reawakened with the realization that, geez, guys, we're going to put this thing into orbit in a year or two, and we don't actually have all the gear that we would need to maintain it, but we've been promising we would maintain it. We probably really ought to get going and develop this gear. I hadn't appreciated what that hiatus sort of had meant for the intensity of the work that we did from 85 to 90. And then also, I really wanted and needed to go back and talk to my other colleagues and learn more of their story and understand what the pieces and parts of of the Hubble story were as they saw them, because many of these guys saw very different dimensions of it than I was able to see from my little tiny perch. So the blessing of the project was to get back connected with so many folks from the early Hubble team and and for the first time have the time to sit down together and really uh, come to know each other's personal stories uh, more richly. How did did you come to be here? Why did you end up working at NASA? What on earth were you drawing from in the way of personal experience and engineering experience in 1973? to be thinking about how to maintain uh, a telescope in orbit when there had never been such a thing before. And I just found all of those personal dimensions of the story really fascinating. Yeah. Well, that's awesome that you got to reconnect with your old team and crew and stuff. That's great. And there's, I mean, there are just some great stories there. One of the key mm-hmm. tool designers was the ninth of 12 children born to Mexican migrant farm workers in central Texas. And, you know, he was uh, the kind of person from the kind of background that is never slated to go to college. He's advised to go become an engineering draftsman, which he does, and then he's encouraged over time by his fellow engineers to get himself a college degree. Works his way through junior college and then university and then does a stint in the Navy as a naval flight officer and and then fetches up back in Texas on contract at NASA just as the shuttle's coming along and and starts creating the spacewalking tools for the shuttle. I mean, great Horatio Alger stories like that from very unexpected backgrounds to really a central role in something as spectacular as the Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah, well, that's amazing. I mean, that's a great story. And that kind of leads into my next question is, you know, what do you think readers will be most surprised to learn about in this book? I mean, stories like that seem like something like a lot of people will be like, wow, that's really cool. So, I mean, is there anything else like that that you think readers might be a little surprised to, to read about? Well, I hope several of those little personal vignettes of, of some of my public colleagues will will have that sort of um, did that give that kind of flash of inspiration to people because everybody came from an odd background you wouldn't have expected. I enjoyed telling some of the smaller amusing anecdotes of you know life, my life as an astronaut and my different crews that are not I, I just don't usually tell them. Um, just they never they're never normally top of mind when I'm giving a talk about uh, my astronaut career. So it was fun to have the extra you know the slower pace the greater amount of time that a reader will give you to tell a few of those. So there's some there's some good laughs in there that I'm sure people will enjoy. And again, I hope, most of all, I would hope that uh, younger people reading it, maybe high school, middle schoolers even, or high schoolers, through some combination of my path and the others that I describe, maybe they'll just realize, you know, it doesn't matter where you're starting from. It's how bold a dream you put into your mind and how hard you're willing to work at it. You know, Dr. Sue said it right, oh, the places you can go with a, a bold dream and some persistence and uh, 
learning as you go and taking advice and insight from people around you as you go, because I certainly did that and all the other colleagues that I give a little sketch of in the book. All of our pathways are, are just like that, some glimmer some dream and then some persistence uh, and hunger and moving towards it and continuing to work on it. No magic, just keeping going. Yeah, so there is a sense of um, hoping this book kind of, you know, inspires the next generation of space explorers, it sounds like. Yeah, I mm-hmm. would hope so. And and maybe also sheds a little, uh, you know, you see people, uh, if you see a picture of folks in mission control in Houston or you know, running the planetary probes out of the Jet Propulsion Lab, you know, I think you tend to look at them and sort of, you see them as People already complete, experts already complete. Well, of course they know how to do that. But to look at that picture again and say, you know, that guy started as a motorcycle fanatic, and this guy started following his dad around train yards, and and you know, this guy came from farm fields in Central Texas. It's, you know, it's they came from they made themselves a pathway to that seat that they have, and you can make yourself a pathway. Uh, into the space program or into a medical operating room, whatever your dream may be, you know, we, we, uh, you don't happen on these roads and, they're not, and, and just march down them. You, you build them. Life is sort of a road that you're building with every step that you go. And I think all the people that I uh, had the privilege to work with on the Hubble team, the roads they built were absolutely fascinating and really inspiring to me, and I hope they'll be inspiring to others. Mm-hmm. And so in that spirit of... Um you know, passing the torch, so to speak. You yourself made history as the first American woman to walk in space. And just recently, last month, uh, you know, N- NASA reached another milestone when um, two Americans became the first to take part in an all-female spacewalk. So what was that like for you to, to kind of, you know, to hear about or witness? Well, I, it was really very fun on a, a number of levels. Christina Cook, uh, who was EV1 on that spacewalk, uh, when she was selected as an astronaut in 2013, as it turns out, she was working for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, running the research station in American Samoa. And at that same time, I was the administrator of NOAA, the Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmospheres. So it was very fun to make a congratulatory phone call to her in 2013 when she was selected. And then, you know, a few years later, turn the clock around again. Here she is uh, leading a spacewalk from the International Space Station that happens to be the first spacewalk on which both crew members were female. And then just to add another bookend to that, the life support backpack on her suit, I'm told, is the same serial number backpack that I wore in 1984. So these fun, several really fun points of intersection in uh, a young, a new astronaut's career were quite fun to note. Yeah, I was kind of amused and delighted to finally see G2 women go to a spacewalk and, you know, guess what? It shouldn't be so notable. And guess what? Of course, it all, you know, why is it even, why are we even commenting anymore whether the two people outside in spacewalk, on uh, a spacewalk, are two men or two women or one of each? Sort of be, I would be delighted to see us get to the point where it's not even noteworthy. It's just presumed that competent professionals go do what competent professionals do, regardless of gender. A little slow getting here. I could have wished it would go faster, but glad we have gotten here. And it's a nice bit of testament to the slowly but continually rising numbers of women across the board in really significant positions of responsibility within NASA. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I, that's a that's an interesting sentiment, and you know, very true sentiment. If I just add one other thing to add, if you zoom back a little bit, take your 
zoom back from just two women in spacesuits outside the space station, if you zoomed back a little further and said, well, what the whole team that was doing that spacewalk includes a lot of people on the ground in mission control, you might be surprised how many of those key positions during that spacewalk were also occupied by women. I believe the flight director was a woman. The EVA flight controller working uh, all the systems on the ground was female. So you know, we, uh, much has been made of the two women being in spacesuits outside and how you know, novel that was to have two women doing that spacewalk. But there probably were about a dozen women in key, all the key positions of responsibility. And it, this was not by design to make it a stunt. It's just testament to the increasing happily increasing number of women in very competent roles uh, mm-hmm. throughout the NASA team. Yeah, exactly. And then I think this would probably be a good place to end it, but I guess since we're on the topic of spacewalks, you know, I guess what do you remember most about your own spacewalk? Oh, uh, I remember vividly being excited and delighted that we finally got the go to open the hatch. And then the really, mom- the moment etched in my mind is one brief moment that I had a chance to you know, pause and, and just stop for a second because our crewmates inside the cabin and had to get something set up before we went on to our next activity. And that gave me the only little bit of a moment that I had to really stop focusing on work that I was doing and just take in where I was. And where I was felt like I was hanging from a a tree limb 200 miles above the earth and looking down with no window frame bounding my view, looking down between my boots and seeing northern Venezuela slide by. So it was... That I can still envision that scene very vividly in my mind's eye. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, something only a very select few humans get to experience that I'm, I'm sure was incredible. Tremendous privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think that kind of covers all the questions I had, but did you want to add anything else before I let you go? I appreciate the chance to talk to you and uh, hope folks enjoy reading the book. Yeah. Yeah, it was great talking with you again. Thank you, Dr. Sullivan. I appreciate your time this afternoon. Very welcome, Eric. All right. Take care. And thank you all for listening to Life in the 614. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music. We hope to have you back next week. Until then, keep enjoying your own life in the 614.